we're in this dim blue light in the back of this chopper. The pilots are flying on night vision. We're screaming towards the surgical facility and this guy's dying in front of us. I assess him again. There's no signs of life. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your country. That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you were going to humans quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. You have to be resilient to get a poke War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Dr. Dan Pronk is a former Special Forces combat doctor. He deployed four times to Afghanistan and went on over 100 combat missions. He's been on this podcast six times before, and the details of his previous appearances can be found in the episode description, on our website, and at the end of the episode. Dan came back on the show to talk to me about his new book, his life story, called The Combat Doctor. The book is out today in print, audiobook, and ebook, and I'm his publisher at Pam Macmillan. This is our chat about Dr. Dan Pronk, the combat doctor. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking again today with Dr. Dan Pronk. Dan, welcome back to your seventh appearance on the show. Thank you kindly, Alex. It's a real privilege to be back again so many times. There's always just so much to talk about. We've had you back over the years for a few times, Dan, you originally sharing highlights of your military and transition career with Sharon Maskell Dare, then promoting other things you've been in, either books you've written, shows you've been on, et cetera, and some other group tribute episodes. But uh, you're back for another book today. But this one's quite different. It's your first traditionally published solo book, which uh, is a long-worded accolade, but it's also quite significant for it. So probably the most personal thing you've written, your autobiography the combat doctor and to talk about this book and we'll talk about what some of the anecdotes and people in it but it wasn't just a couple of years ago you decided i'm going to write my memoir now it's time i'm old and gray enough it's uh, been something i know it's an entity that's existed for quite a while in different incarnations can you take us back to the earliest nascent words of the material of the manuscript yeah look absolutely and, and you're quite correct and and you know this story alex better than most but the kind of bones of this book were written as a bit of a cathartic exercise after my second tour of afghanistan in 2011 where we'd we'd lost three task group members in relatively quick succession so we, we lost brett wood and uh, Ryan Robinson, Todd Langley on that tour, and I'd I'd been in the field for all of those, and and there was a couple of other key incidents that I talked to in the book during that rotation. It was a very, very uh, sort of kinetic, very high stress, very stimulating period of time that deployment. And and when I got back, I was I was I think probably understandably quite wound up as a, a lot of the task group members were, and and one of the psychologists in one of my post operations debrief had suggested to to write down some of the key events to just try and make sense of them to try and get get the timeline accurate capture all the detail and start uh, just a different way of processing the information and and so I started doing that around the the key incidents 
and and I found it hugely cathartic. And for anyone listening, you know, journaling and and particularly journaling and capturing uh, detail on paper or or in a computer or of, of key incidents is a great way of processing things. But but that was the the start of this book all those years ago, some eleven years ago, that that just evolved slowly in bits and stops and starts over the years. Yeah, and uh, just on your comment on journaling there, it's uh, something I've observed when veterans come and talk with us on Mike that they find that often quite cathartic just to verbally get something across. But then the actual medium, I think, of written word, as you say, has that much more power again, because you're having to really more consciously articulate your thoughts so you can even edit them as you go. And the transition from brain to keyboard, uh, there's something really compelling about that. So I can imagine that you've really got that out of your system to a point, so to speak. And it's uh, something that you can, it maybe blocks out the intrusive thoughts, or maybe just allows you to sort of focus something else because you know, okay, I've got this to over here to deal with and can come back to later. Yeah, look for sure. I mean, all of those things, and and I'm I'm not surprised that veterans find talking on uh, life on the line as a, as a cathartic exercise in a way. There's Jordan Peterson, who's a, a, a someone who I respect highly, contemporary uh, a psychologist and a, a thought leader in a lot of fields, and has some really strong and and important opinions in my uh, in my opinion he talks a lot about how we we formalize our thoughts and and process information through speaking i mean this is how we organize our thoughts and and having that opportunity to to speak on a topic such as reflecting on potentially uh, rich or or traumatic experiences I'm not surprised at all that that people come on the show and find that cathartic. And but exactly as you say, I think that and there's some great evidence, scientific data to support this. That when you start writing that down and particularly handwriting, it, it's next level again. It's a, a just a different way for the brain to process information. I think also we get a more it forces you to fill in the blanks. We humans suffer from a thing called negativity bias. We fixate on the negative and we value it more highly than neutral and positive. And when you're writing things down and you're trying to generate an accurate timeline of what happened, it's, it forces you to fill in all the blanks and you, you might start to see a bit more of a balanced view of what happened. And maybe in any uh, disastrous situation, there's always some positives that you'll tend to overlook, you'll fixate on that negative. So I think for a, for a whole range of reasons, uh, you know, journaling, writing things down, talking through things is is hugely cathartic. Well, you get that catharsis after that second tour where those uh, three men lose their lives and that's a significant aspect of your own story as well. But then you have two more tours after that. Uh, there's more casualties. There's more things of high velocity, high impact that you witness and experience in Afghanistan you leave special forces, you go through a bit of a rough transition period. These are all things we've covered before in previous episodes. Then I guess, when do you go back to those early things that you wrote down on that second tour, uh, the one where Brett Rowan and Todd passed away? Do you keep journaling after the other two or do you revisit it sometime later? The way it came about, so I'd, I'd done that initial uh, reflective writing, if you like, and, and that was very vividly detailed. It was a cathartic exercise that was never intended to, to see the light of day. It was uh, for me to process my thoughts and, and it worked tremendously. But what it also sparked was this uh, joy of writing, to be honest. I found that I, I loved it, you know, and so I, I kept going with that to a, to a degree. I captured some key uh, negative incidents to try and process that information, but then started to write creatively some positive 
incidents. I, uh, I, in, I can't remember which tour it was. It must have been my maybe my fourth and final in Afghanistan. It was over winter. I ended up over there over a winter period and, and I actually did a creative writing course online through Harvard, which sounds very grandiose, but it was one of their lower level uh, sort of, I think it was free or cheap. Anyway, did a creative writing course and, and just enjoyed that process of, of writing creatively around events. And, and I'd sort of written maybe 70, 80,000 words at this point, but then just got on with my soldiering. And uh, some months after that, I was back at SASR and, and ran into Mark Donaldson on base. And I hadn't seen Dono for a while. We'd been on different schedules and saw him at the gym, sort of said to him, what have you been up to? And he told me he'd written his book. So he had written uh, Crossroads at that stage. And I told him how I had started writing. I found it, you know, a great, a great activity, very cathartic. And he asked to see some of my stuff. And so I, I gave that to him. He had a read and, and, uh, and then he asked for, for permission to put that through to his publisher at the time to have a bit of a look at and, and which they did and came back to me saying, hey, this is good. Would you consider finishing the book? And, and so that was kind of the catalyst there to, to crack on and, and finish the book as it was uh, back then, this is some eight years ago now, I kicked on, filled in some of the blanks around the story to make it complete at the time. Uh, but then for a, a host of reasons, it wasn't the right time to to publish the book. So it sat on my hard drive for, for some time until we reinvigorated it for this project. I've never heard before that you, uh, what you could phrase it, studied at Harvard. That's just a little casual. Uh, <laughs> no, that's that you've, that's, uh, a, that's an exaggeration of what happened there, Alex. Well, that book had initial interest from a former colleague of mine at Pam McMillan, who was Mark Donaldson's publisher. I was an assistant working on Donna's book way back when. And uh, you and I know the sort of back and forth to eventually lead to uh, this project. But focusing more, I guess, on your aspect from the writing creative side, when we finally circle back this final time to bring this to the fore, because I'd read an earlier draft a number of years ago, and then you have refined it, you've found the balance in some scenes and descriptions and so on over the years. The last sort of big edit was expanding the book to be, as you've sort of identified, you're writing about those key incidents. And there were all, obviously, they had a particular focus or nature. And there was some, some of it really flowed, some of it had an episodic journalistic nature to it, which is what its original form was. But then I guess this final push on it was you flexing those Harvard-informed creative writing muscles. You've got a couple of other books up your sleeve now, actually really turning it into a fully-fleshed narrative rather than just a diary. And that's keeping the action, but adding more informed reflections of your personal journey, threading through those arcs together, more stuff at life at home. I mean, how was that process to sort of elevate it from that journal to an actual memoir? Yeah, I found it brilliant. I, and, you know, full credit to yourself and Belinda and the team at Pan Mac for guiding me through that that process. I, because I'd written it for that cathartic purpose originally, it, it was exactly as you said, episodic. It was, it was chunks of time. There was a lot of repetition in among the different stories. And then I just tried to thread them together and and it took me some time to realise that that didn't work. That I think the other thing for the longest time when I was too close to those experiences, I felt that pulling detail out of them would somehow diminish them. And, and if I was going to tell the story, I wanted to tell the, the full story. But as, as I transitioned out of defence and started to reintegrate back into civilian life and, 
and experience, particularly that transition period, and get some distance between myself as a as a doctor with special operations and then coming back and, and reintegrating really into family life. It it changed the whole perspective of what this thing is. And hopefully I think you know, it's a. I'm, I'm. I'm really proud of how it turned out, and I'm. I'm proud of the fact that it isn't just just war stories, because that's not what I wanted to do with this. I wanted to try and capture a, a slightly unique perspective on special operations through the lens of a, a doctor, but also hopefully capture the well some of the events surrounding the deaths of the blokes that I fear might get lost to sort of history if we don't capture them, but also the, the human toll. I mean, the, the very real human toll of what happened in Afghanistan. Well, you're well known, Dan, for especially your most famous uh, mohawk goatee beard uh, profile picture on Instagram. And there's those kind of cowboy yeah. doctor uh, iconic imagery and so on. And the book, I think, does a great job of capturing the essence of where your headspace was at the time, what the soldier's instinct to want to prove themselves in those highest of circumstances, a medical professional's instinct to want to see how do I go handling trauma, especially at this kind of level and the nature of that and wanting to be tested. But then also as you change, uh, we see through your writing, how that's affecting you in ways you don't know then that you process later how that informs what you want to do with the medics under you in terms of their training and preparation. So it's not just a personal introspective journey, but it's also then the impact that leads to the team around you and a part of the legacy going forward for uh, those uh, medical scenarios. Yeah, look, absolutely. And, and, I I apologise for, for some of those images that, that float around the internet. It's interesting when I look at them, and and actually recently I've, I've been in touch with some of the crew from the, the Black Rifle Coffee Company in the US, and, and they latched onto a, another image where I'm, I'm holding a bag of heroin and some cash, and, and we're, we were doing a, a drug raid with the DEA. And, and, you, and you have quite a facial expression. I know that photo. It's very... Yeah, yeah. look, I mean, because at that point, that was that was mission success. You know, that was the, the target we'd gone out after was a, a Taliban and a heroin storage facility. We'd, we'd found it, we'd got the heroin, we'd destroyed it. So, I mean, the mission was accomplished and it was, that was a, a, a good moment in that day, which, which turned pretty bad pretty quick because very shortly after that, Ron Robinson was, was shot. And, but I do see how, and, you know, this was the discussion I, I had recently with a, a journalist who writes for um, for Black Rifle for Coffee or Die magazine, look, talking about that image and just getting the story of that image because people, if you see that in isolation or the, the, the Mohawk photo, I, I imagine they build a narrative around that in their mind as to who this person is. And, and I, I, I do hope that the combat doctor sort of dispels a bit of that and, you know, looking past that face value of what you're seeing with a, a special operator to try and appreciate, I suppose, the, the everything that's gone into them being in that role and then everything they're doing in that role and then the aftermath, how that gets processed and, and how they move forward in life. And I, hopefully that's the story that I capture in the book and not just the, the go fast, shiny, you know, mohawks and beards and stuff. Well, I think that's, uh, and obviously I have great bias here as your publisher, but I think that's a strength. <laughs> I think that's a strength of the book in that it's got those moments and it captures that at the time authenticity of it, but then it provides a context and a reflection and the whole well-rounded experience. So I did have a colleague look at either that photo or the Mohawk photo, one of those, and the picture of you on the cover 
which is much more up to date and you've got a um you've lost your viking look and uh, you're in a suit and that's is that the same person or yes oh sometimes i wonder mo- myself to be perfectly honest and particularly when i i look back at some some of the helmet camera footage that i captured over the years and it seems like i'm watching a movie or you know someone else's life it's 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 sometimes difficult to register that, that that's actually you know experiences that i've had because i feel i've evolved as a person i'm a very different person now than i was 11 years ago uh, and i was a different person then than i was 11 years prior to that you know so it's yeah it's um it's a, a, an interesting thing this reflecting on that experience how has your wife found uh, reading the book and sort of seen this insight into i mean i know she was obviously with you at the time and you were having your family as you're on deployment but it's one thing to been married to you at the time i guess and what conversations you did or didn't want to have but now actually that yes that thought to paper process that we talked about before how did she find christy find that experience well she generally doesn't read anything that i write so this, <laughs> i can say with absolute confidence she hasn't read resilient shield and uh and or or average 70 kilo uh, dickhead but and i wouldn't have it any other way to be to be perfectly honest but she did read the combat doctor and she's obviously a key character in this and i I think and going through this process to there was a, a lot of blanks once again not only in in my story that I needed to fill in, but in in her side of the story, I, I realised somewhat uh, Im- embarrassingly that while I was off doing my thing, I'd, I'd really not taken much deep interest or given much consideration to the, the the stress that Christy was under. You know, raising our young family and 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 which was huge. And and I mean, she's a she's the hero of the story, in my opinion, and she's the one that should be wearing the medals. And that's that's not just her. That's every military spouse. You know, it's it's not just the deployed soldier. It is the the family on the home front that has to keep everything running. But I, there, there was a lot of detail that she uh, she didn't know, uh, which this kind of filled in the blanks. And and likewise, you know, me forcing to to sit down and try and fill in this this other side of my story, which was the home front, made me have these discussions with Christy about you know what was life like when I was away and she was home with the young kids. And and uh, yeah, embarrassingly, I, I wasn't very sensitive to her needs. And God bless her. She just, she's a very stoic woman and she just clicked into single mum mode and and got on with it. I think that depiction though, of that sort of disconnect in family life, that would be common to some other soldiers, some other emergency responders. It'd be something that's far more identifiable than some will want to admit. And it's important to actually just own up to, I wasn't paying attention here. And uh, this is something that people can learn from and go ask themselves, actually, am I not engaging should i be engaging more with um whether that's family friends loved ones whatever it is so that's an important perspective of the book and the fact that the book was a part of that journey in itself for you because it get led to some fantastic moments christy's one of my favorite characters in the book <laughs> as well and i'll i'll just read one line from yeah. the near the end of the book the resilient shield shameless plug had just hit the bestseller list and when I told Christy that the book had become a bestseller, she responded, that's great news. And then added, I think we'll have the leftover chicken for dinner. That's just, <laughs> that's nice, honey. We'll move on. <laughs> yeah, no, she's awesome. And I, I think that goes on to say something like, you know, she's always been my rock, but never been my cheerleader. And for me, that's, I think, exactly what I what I need. I, I think the worst thing would have been, and Christy, she tolerated is probably the right term. <laughs> no, she she respected and she supported my career aspirations in the military, but was never 
was the furthest thing from a groupie. She never, it didn't matter to her whether I was with regular army, whether I was with the SAS, whether I was with the commandos, it, it, it was all irrelevant. It was, you know, she, she just was, was there to support me. And, and then when the time came and, and I talked to this in the book, I, I did, even though I was not as sensitive to, to her needs while I was doing the job in the army, I did always have that, those lines of communication with her to let her know that when, when it became too much, when it was hitting breaking point, that, that she could tell me and I'd discharge from the army. And, and that's indeed what happened. I just got home from my fourth tour of Afghanistan a couple of weeks before our third son was born. And that was when she said, hey, this it's time. And, and, and she was perfectly correct. And with hindsight, I think I was starting to register that I was getting a bit burnt out at that point. And, and so for a variety of reasons, that was the right time. And, and thankfully, I, I was tuned in enough to listen to Christy at that point, because I knew she wouldn't go and say something which she knew was so significant, uh, unless it was actually breaking point. We were speaking a few moments ago about how you were watching some helmet cam footage and felt a bit disconnected from it. It was like watching a movie. And I think that also speaks to the importance of having written down what you wrote down when it was so fresh and raw because we know think memory can there can be emotional disconnect you ask interview five people their perspective of one event and you all get slightly different narratives so it's great that you had that documentation but then doing this book meant you were still although it was already written in a way revisiting some significant traumatic events from over a decade ago as well the deaths of four colleagues and friends brett wood rowan robinson todd langley and blaine didham's and we've talked about Brett Wood on this show before in a special tribute episode to him. And we're not going to talk further on Brett or the others today specifically. I think that's in the book and the amount of attention and respect and the execution of that writing is the best place for the actual telling of those stories. But I'm interested, I guess, from your creative process. And obviously we had conversations as this was unfolding, but for the listener, finding the balance between transitioning that cathartic journal and to be honest, um, in those early drafts, clinical medical account of what occurred leading up to and at time of death versus a tribute piece to the fallen filing the balance in that for the reader and ultimately with the goal of this is also your story and it's affected your life too and so balancing those rather sensitive and complex scales yeah it's it, it was tricky and as i mentioned earlier i mean the my view on this book has changed dramatically over the last 10 years from the initial instinct to publish every detail or nothing you know if you don't tell the full story then don't tell any story at all was my attitude for the longest time and but coming back to it through that lens of having transitioned and moved out of that environment and 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 I think in a lot of ways having maybe the term softened is not the right one but it's the one that comes to mind as as a human and and as I said, evolved and, and kind of de deregulated, decalibrated, uh, recalibrated is probably the term I'm looking for. But but looking at these events through a different perspective and realising, no, hang on, there is still a, hopefully a powerful story to tell here that does not require the, the amount of detail. It, 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 but it does require that we capture, in my opinion, the events that, that occurred and, and particularly the heroics of the events. And, and you know, I fear that, that stories like, Todd Langley's, who uh, 
in the event where where Brett struck the IED and he, Todd was the guy who led our quick reaction force to the incident site. And this is stuff that I that will not be captured unless unless it's documented. So that was important to me. The story behind Ron Robinson and and how he came to be in the gunfight, which cost him his life. And you know that was it's these are heroic stories, in my opinion. The the heroic acts that have and and Brett Wood's story is well documented in terms of his medal for gallantry. And, and uh, we know that, that he was quite the warrior. But these are the, the stories that I was hoping to capture through my lens that was very important to me. And, and I realised I could do this really hopefully quite well without requiring the, the detail that was in the initial manuscript. Yes, but still finding that amount of detail that the detail matters, perhaps not to another soldier as much who was, say, there providing cover or that kind of thing. But when it's coming from the point of view of, the doctor there's from a very clinical perspective they're a patient they're a puzzle you need to solve or there are you know there's parts you need to fix so to speak there's that but then it translates to the very human aspect of they're a mate or they're a colleague so it's finding that amount that is respectful but also you have to document well this is what i had to overcome and encounter as part of a challenge for me as a human being as well and that was um Look, that was a very interesting journey for us to navigate together and I'm proud of how it's turned out. But like you say, it's a finding that to tell not just your story, but the story of those fallen and those also there that day. Yeah, and I think just to pick up on a point that you made earlier about different perspectives of situations, and, and I'm very aware, I was very aware when I was writing and editing this latest version of the book that that despite this being my truth, this isn't going to be other people's truths. And, and it's a, a fascinating thing when you look back on, like exactly like you said, you can take five people and they can all have the same, uh, be involved in the same incident, and they will have very different perspectives of what occurred. And, and then over time, we form these memories and these memories change. We think they're fixed, but they don't. And I think the, this process of, of writing this and, and documenting it, and I'm aware that when it goes out there, there'll be other people that, that look at it and say, hey, hang on, I saw this from a different angle. And then it sort of came into this, you know, my recollection and, and based on the, the notes that I captured very close to the event. But then this, this reflection on when I did thrash out all the detail of these events, starting to see that even some of the memories that I held firmly we're probably a little bit skewed. And, and so it's a, it's a fascinating beast, but hopefully, uh, you know, as I said, I've captured what, what is my truth and uh, just telling the story through my lens. But it's interesting when you, you look at that process of memory formation, memories changing, and then different people's interpretation, particularly of high-intensity experiences. Well, Dan, we've talked about what's been added to the book, the depth of some of those reflections, the heavy moments. The book has a lot of heart. It has plenty of action. It has significant heavy moments. It also just has some humor and some comedy gold. And although we've talked about how much the book has expanded and grown, there's still some of those key anecdotes that are just a wild, fun read. And one of my favorites is the Gerber incident. Could you please share that story with our listeners? That's another one of these things where I reflect on that and think, geez, wow, that, that was a pretty outrageous thing that occurred there. But in a nutshell, we'd been, uh, the Special Operations Task Group had a, a great 
a relationship with the forward aeromedical evacuation helicopter, so the dust-off birds. And, and this relationship had been forged from the very early rotations of SOTG. The medical elements had been going down and spending time on the dust-off bird. And, and so I, during my time in Afghanistan, managed to get out, I think, on about 30 dust-off missions. And, and we'd, we'd go down and spend 24-hour blocks with the dust off bird and and so if they launched on a mission you'd go with them and so it was this brilliant opportunity to to go out pick up casualties uh, from the field sometimes still in in hot hot landing zones where there was still combat going on and and it was often blast or gunshot wound casualties and and then just try to stabilize them as best you can in flight as you try and make your way back to a, a surgical facility so that they can can get the care they needed and so the, the, the Gerber incident, uh, I'd, I'd picked up this, and the story's in the book, I'd picked up on my first tour on, through, on the way through Kuwait, I'd picked up this Gerber boot knife, this, this short, fixed-bladed, double-edged double boot knife, and I had this thing on my chest rig just as a, a bit of a utility knife. And so I had this thing on me, this Gerber incident happened in my second tour, so I've had this knife for a while. And we'd launched, we'd picked up a, a soldier, he was an Afghan army bloke, so ANA guy, and he, he'd been shot a, a couple of times in the, the neck and the, the upper chest and was in pretty bad shape. He, he uh, his blood pressure was through his boots. I think it was, it was 80 on 50 or something when we launched. And Pick this guy up and as soon as we took off to altitude, so so he had he clearly had wounds in his chest, he clearly had a punctured lung and had some gas trapped in his chest. And and then when you go to altitude, trapped gas expands and and he ended up with building up pressure in his chest, a thing called a tension pneumothorax. And so the flight medic and I took turns in in trying to relieve that pressure by putting needles in his chest in strategic positions. And that worked a little bit for a little while. And it was getting dark by this time. So it was sort of this perfect storm of we were racing home in this Black Hawk, uh, trying to get this guy to the surgical facility before he died on us. And and the needle decompressions had bought us a bit of time, but but they weren't they weren't holding. Thing. they were they were clotting off and clogging and and so I wanted to progress to to put a slightly bigger hole in his chest to really vent the pressure out and make sure he he didn't build up more pressure and and so that process involves making a cut in the chest wall and then using a, a set of surgical forceps to to burrow down and and pop into the the chest cavity basically and then you put a finger in there and sweep around and and that allows a hole big enough for any trapped pressure and any blood that's built up up to come out. I had a kit purpose built for this, so it, it had a, some local anaesthetic to numb the area, which is up in the in the uh, armpit, sort of on the side of the chest, is the area we want to go for there. And local anaesthetic, it uh, I thought it had a scalpel in it. It should have had a scalpel in it, and then the surgical forceps to to burrow into the chest wall. And and so we're in this dim blue light in the back of this chopper. The pilots are flying on night vision. We're screaming towards the surgical facility, and I got this kit out to make this hole in the bloke's chest and, and when I opened it up there, there was no scalpel in it and so I, I put the local anesthetic in I turned back to get the knife it, it just wasn't there plain and simple I, I hadn't packed it I thought initially it might have fallen out I'm looking around the floor of this blacked out helicopter asked the flight medic hopped up on the communication said you know if you've got a scalpel I need to make a cut in this guy's chest to, and and he's like nah and and I'm, I'm, I'm just getting frust more and more frustrated at myself this guy's dying in front of us so I assess him again there's no signs of life he's 
his eyes are rolled back in his head and his, uh, we, we had a little machine called a pulse oximeter that, that measures, you put it on a finger and it measures pulse and it measures the oxygen levels in the blood and that thing stopped reading and it was beeping just here and there and, and it seemed that this guy's heart was going out of rhythm. Anyway, I at that point realised I had this Gerber boot knife on my, uh, on my chest rig and I honestly believed that this guy was dying right in front of us because of pressure in his chest and had no other way of opening his chest. So drew the Gerber boot knife and and made the skin cut with that in, in lieu of a scalpel and then proceeded to do the procedure as you would with the surgical forceps. And and it was indeed a, a massive build-up of pressure in this guy's chest. So when I got into the, into the chest cavity, it, it just blew out a bunch of pressurised air and blood and uh and it, that was a, around the exact time that we landed back at tk got the bloke onto an ambulance he then proceeded to, to have a cardiac arrest and so we did some cpr on him just as we we screamed up to the the surgical facility and by the time we got there his heart had started beating again and he'd started breathing for himself and got him into the the surgical uh, the resuscitation bay they gave him a, a massive blood transfusion into surgery they found the bleeding vessels and and um, and stop the bleeding. And so we had a good result there and he survived, but he kicked off a couple of investigations. There were some, <laughs> some questions asked uh, by a couple of different parties as to why it had come to be that I'd used that particular instrument for for uh, that in, in that context. So yeah, it, it did sort of stir up a couple of storms in teacups, which I fear with hindsight that what was lost in in that uh, aftermath was the fact that that was an instrument of last resort. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't me being a cowboy. That was me trying to find a practical solution to what I thought was a bloke dying in front of me. So, but anyway, that that got lost in translation, and and uh, a couple of investigations ensued. Like you say, it was an instrument of absolute necessity. And I'll say, if you don't want to, it's just cool. Uh, that's yeah, you know. look, it, 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 and I, I talked to this in the book as well. And, and at the time, I mean, I, I was, I was high as a kite when we got this guy to the surgical facility, I was buzzing, you know, this had been a, a hugely exciting experience. And then to have the guy survive was just like, this is fantastic. And, and then compounding that was this, Hey, you know, that in my mind at that time, I thought that is possibly the coolest thing i've ever done <laughs> the pinnacle of my doctor career is using uh, a that knife yeah nah, but i mean yeah and then when you take a step back and you, you look at that through the lens of the, the the treating surgeon for instance at that facility you know I've, I've turned up with this patient i'm covered in his blood of you know i've got a beard and long hair and body armor and whatever else strapped to me and then you know it comes to light that i've used my knife to cut his chest i, I can see it from their perspective and it looks terrible and as i said i fear that the context of of what had happened there was was lost in the moment well i think your only mistake was um going hey look what i used to that was your only rookie error you're exactly right and then that's something i regret to this day and that was just pure ego and uh enthusiasm at the time and and yeah really and truly when i reflect there's no other reason why i did that other than wanting them to know because I thought, thought it was cool at the time. Well, Dan, in our chat today, we've talked about the evolution of the book, what it's meant to you, how it's gone from something very personal to now something very public and the rewrites and the edits. And the last aspect of creative engagement with it, I guess you've had 
just recently is narrating the audio book and you've done that before with average 70 kilo dickhead and your parts in the resilient shield but is that a fun final farewell to the text for you that good done tick narrated this this is it's gone to print it's been recorded yeah it's that sort of farewell to it and now goes out to the public yeah it was in a way i i thoroughly enjoyed the process it was and i worked with the same team that that i worked with for uh, resilient shield so that was fantastic we uh, had a really good rhythm with uh, matt the bloke on the the other side of the the booth and great human being and really uh, a fantastic guy very professionally competent so it went smoothly from that perspective i found it uh, quite fun I, I approached it differently to the other two and this was this was based on Tim Curtis and his narration of his parts of resilient shield and so I, I hadn't we hadn't heard Ben and I hadn't heard any of Tim's narration until the book came out it was all said and done and, and he was just so enthusiastic and just and, and so that really sort of inspired me to to put a bit more emotion and a bit more of me into into reading this book and I think because it was my story as well and it was far more personal than a lot of the content of resilient shield it hit differently as well there's there were certainly points where I was I was choking back tears, and I'm not sure if that'll come out in the audio. Uh, I, I kind of hope it does, to be honest, because they're, you know, talking around the loss of the blokes in in Afghanistan, but also around the passing of my my father, who who died a few years back, and and so yeah, I've. I've I feel I've been quite vulnerable in this this book, and that's that's very deliberate, and and uh, I hope that comes through. But yeah, it was a, a a different experience and a very enjoyable experience. And as you say, it is a closure of sorts. I think with any of these creative processes, you you do the best that you can, and you you, you put out a product that that well certainly with the Combat Doctor that I'm very proud of. I think it's a, the best product I'm capable of producing, but it's not for me to decide whether it's good or not. So I guess it's about letting letting go now, pushing it out there and and see if it resonates. Well, at time of recording, the audio is still uh, being edited, so I've not heard any samples yet, but look forward to hearing that. It sounds like you've done a great job. This book will have, I guess, two camps of readers, the military community, whether we're talking veterans or families and so on, and they're quite sort of engaged in this space, and a lot of them will be familiar with you. And then the general public who just might see this book on a bookshelf called The Combat Doctor, and that's a bit of an intriguing proposition, and they might not have heard of you before. What do you hope each of those different camps, uh, each of those different readerships take from the book? It's probably a pretty similar thing that I hope they take from it. And, and I hope, and I touched on this before, I hope it provides a, a balanced and authentic and vulnerable narrative of what it's like to be a, a soldier on operations, what it's like to be a doctor on operations, that seeming paradox between being in an environment where at times you're required to use lethal force and then transition straight into trying to save lives and, you know, sometimes the lives of the people who were just shooting at you and just looking at, at a little bit behind, like I said before, those the photos that you see on the internet and, and you come up with your own idea of, of what that who that person is and, and what that person's experiences are. And I, I think hopefully this, this talks to that and, and hopefully it's... I've tried very hard not to make this just war stories. I, I didn't want it to be that. I wanted it to be based around that because that's my experience, but more that, that human aspect. But the other thing that I really hope it's captured is that transition piece, which is huge. And 
no matter what your role within the military or indeed policing or any high-performance team, particularly first responders, our paramedics, our emergency department staff, firefighters, the, the list goes on. I think those those tribal sort of cultures, those, uh, dare I say, hyper-masculine type cultures where traditionally mental health has been a little bit stigmatised, I, I, I just hope that it, it sheds a bit of light on some of the challenges associated with these groups so that people who may not have been in those groups or exposed to those groups have a better appreciation of, of what's going on. Well, Dan, if anyone is listening to this podcast, then that means the book is out in print, audiobook and ebook. That is something that obviously you and I are very proud of and we await the reader's response. And uh, I think it's a very personal tale. It's a very cathartic tale. It's a very insightful educational tale. And I agree with everything you've said. So this year you've had this book, last year, The Resilient Shield, and you've been on TV, you've been traveling everywhere, giving seminars and talks. What's next for you on the professional side of things, Dan, writing or otherwise? Yeah, good question. I've always been really interested, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but but in evolving as a human and, and becoming something different, not stagnating. I, I don't know if that stems from the fact that I was an army brat and we moved every two or three years as I grew up and, and I've continued that trend into adulthood. But this most recent, and it's stemmed, these opportunities have stemmed out of the resilient shield, which, you know, for Ben, Tim and I has been the, the best possible outcome we could have hoped from that book. It's really gained an audience and some traction and allowed us to start doing more engagements, workshops and, and talks and that sort of stuff, which which uh, has, has opened up a range of other opportunities. So in terms of the where to from here, I mean, I'm still very heavily engaged with uh, TACMED Australia, which is a veteran-owned company that I'm very proud to, to be a part of and co-own with another couple of ex-special operations medics. And so there's a, there's a bunch of work going on there, which is what has opened the door to to doing stuff like SAS Australia and and other TV type stuff as the medical support for those things. I still do a bit of work in emergency departments and do some surgical assisting for a, a good friend of mine who's an orthopaedic surgeon. So from a medical clinical perspective, staying very engaged there, but more and more getting these opportunities to, to go and do the presentations Got another couple of, of book projects in the pipeline and trying very hard to be more balanced in my life and prioritising family, to be honest. And and all of these other opportunities have meant that I have been able to, to move out of my previous full-time job and plan my life around things like family holidays or, you know, kids' football games or swimming lessons and these sort of things. So it's it's trying to find that balance that wasn't there when I was in the army has now become a real priority. Well, Dan, it's always a pleasure to have you on mic and just actually along the themes of some of our discussions today about perceptions and images. It is funny to think back on us slipping into your DMs four or five years ago based on some of those cool war shots and all that, thinking yeah, he'll be a great guest to have on the show and getting uh, you to chat with Sharon in Adelaide and then um, yeah just um, from our um, professional uh, connection and friendship over the last few years and all the projects that's led to so it's been great to have you on Mike it's been great to work with you on a second book and I'm just so delighted for you that this story is finally out there so congratulations and thanks again for the seventh time for coming on Life on the Line. Yeah no thank you Alex I mean it's yeah it's, it's certainly and, and just to reciprocate those those thoughts I, I greatly value our friendship and, and everything that you You've done to help with both Red Shield and, and this book project has, has just been outstanding. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll be doing this more in the future with uh, further book projects. 
Sounds good, mate. Well, <laughs> thank you. And uh, for all our listeners, I'm Alex Lloyd, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. Get your hands on a copy of Dan's book today. You can also find the Resilient Shield in stores, an average 70 kilo dickhead, online now. And if you enjoyed this conversation with Dan, make sure you've heard all of his previous appearances on the podcast. In season two, Dan shared the highs and lows of his career and transition with Sharon Maskeldare. In number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk, volume one, Certainly I'd been part of medical teams that had lost people in the past, but it was always in a hospital environment and it still hits home to a degree, but it was just a whole different level when it's someone you know, someone who you've had breakfast with, you know, the day before. And also when you're the one everyone's looking to as the person who's going to save this situation and and you simply can't. And volume two. I knew that at some point I was going to need to deal with all the events that had happened leading up to there. I knew that I would go from that fast-paced life to a much slower-paced life. In our post-season two 2018 special episodes, Dan returned in Voodoo Medics with Mark Donaldson VC, Dr. Dan Pronk and Kristen Shorten. They quite often dealt with patching up the enemy. They quite often dealt with patching up the civilian population as well. Having this misconception that every veteran, and particularly every combat veteran, is damaged and all of them are are coming apart with post-traumatic stress. They've got their mates' lives in their hands. They're also required to fight. They're under a lot of pressure and they carry a lot of responsibility. Dan came back in Season 3 in Lessons of a Combat Doctor with Dr Dan Pronk. But I never had any doubt or second guessing. So mentally that was like, hang on, I got this. Yeah, I'm I'm injured, everyone's injured, I'm losing weight, everyone's losing weight. We're all broken, we're all sleep deprived, food deprived. But it was from then on in, I just, I decided that unless I physically broke to the point where I couldn't go on or they physically removed me from the course, that I was gonna get to the end of it and then just see how the chips fell. Then Dan returned in season five, featured in the group tribute podcast, Number 107, Brett Wood. There was that part of him that was just so generous and so giving. He was loyal. He was basically the pinnacle. One of those modern warriors that truly embodied every sense and every letter of that word. Consummate, quite professional. He inspired us. Incredible warrior, incredible leader. And very, very sincere at heart. He was also in the episode called SAS Resilience with Dr. Dan Pronk, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. These kind of things needed to be programmed into muscle memory because we know that when you are under significant stress and we were training these medics to go into combat environments. This was towards the end of our selection course in a phase called Lucky Dip. When I looked around the gloom as the sun was setting on that particular day, there was a range of people inside that truck that were grossly and profoundly disappointed with the fact that their mind and body layer weren't connected. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd also suggest checking out in season two, number 36, Mark Donaldson, VC. People will die. It might be you. It might be your mate. It might be the brand new guy. It's going to happen at some stage because there's lots of bullets that fly around or there's there's dangerous work that we do. And in season three, number 51, Mark Noble. You feel more at home over there than you do here there you're doing your job you're you're trying to do it you're doing it every day you come back here and you sort of feel like you're sitting in limbo you just want to get back over and keep doing what you're there to do follow dan on instagram at dan pronk 
and follow this podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTL Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, The Hell Beyond by The Externals. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. A man sure walks slow, mighty step be your last. It can steal the mind quickly, and it can harden your heart. And you yearn for your family, and you long for your wife, and all that you're missing from a wonderful life. But out here I'm a soldier and a long way from home And I gave up those comforts a long time ago Out here in the dirt and the heat and the dry There's no time for nostalgia, less abundance of mine Just then I looked round and I caught Rowdy's eyes And it snapped me back quicker than he raised up his size He squeezed up some rounds from behind a mud wall as I dived to me guts and I started to crawl Well I've tried to forget how I try But I'll never forget how the fear stole my mind The cornfields erupted She'd scared with self-doubt My throat was bone dry And my heart filled me mouth As the shots cracked around us I remember the high But it wasn't excitement I was just terrified The steel tore through clothing Mud walls, trees and flesh As I emptied my bag Towards nothing at best And as I crawled forward And I looked through my sights I turned and saw Rowdy Give a wink and a smile shouted with me as he sprung to his feet with his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt all around him like rain on a pond as he made his way into the hell just beyond well i've tried to forget how i've tried Machine guns and fire I remember the dust How the grip cut me eyes We battled and fought Through the streets, maze and mud And when I reached Rowdy He was covered in blood I crawled up beside him And I laid by his side Not sure it was sweat or tears Stinging his eyes He grabbed for my hand And he winced through a smile As the din all around him Fell silent and quiet
But I dusted off me best mate in a bag As I licked out a rolly and we passed round a drag We picked up and moved, we were dog-tired and beat We were the dreaming awake and the walking asleep As I sat with a beer, looking over the dash And I drank and I pondered the shit day we'd had But nothing like rowdy, so I raised up my glass And I whispered to old mate it was over too fast 